I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 94 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Folks, I am so excited to announce that after four years of waiting and empty promises, I'm finally delivering the history of A.W. Tillinghast. Well, well, well overdue. In the past four years, we have covered the histories of McKenzie, Ross, Colt, Travis, Maxwell, and even the modern-day architecture firm of King Collins. A.W. Tillinghast was always on my list, and up until today, I have kept you waiting. Well, folks, no more. Today on our show, I am joined by Phil Young, Tillinghast expert, historian, and author, to share the amazing history of one of the greatest golf course architects to have ever lived. Today's podcast will serve as part one of a multi-episode podcast on Tilly. In this episode, we cover his early years and the breakout design that catapulted his career. Before we start our show, I want to thank you all for your support. I recently joined a firm that will be responsible for designing the world's most famous golf holes and building them out of synthetic grass. More than just a putting green, these template holes will be designed to play just like their world-famous counterparts. We are already in talks to design and build these famous golf holes for private residences, city park districts, and private businesses. To me, it's a dream come true. Being part of the design of these historic golf holes while building sustainable, carefree golf holes without the need of water or a mower. A special thanks to you who have reached out and to those of you who have spread the word. As always, if you want to discuss these historic golf holes or just want to leave me a message about the show, you can reach me at the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com. Now let's kick off part one of the history of A.W. Tillinghast. Phil, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History. My pleasure. This is a, a treat and an honor to be, you know, uh, honest about it. it it's, uh, I've known of your site for a while now, and you've had wonderful guests, and that you consider me to be able to be spoken with really is uh, humbling. Oh, trust me. Uh, you come highly recommended. You know, I've, I've teased our audience over nearly four years about doing a podcast on A.W. Tillinghast. And today we finally can make it happen. Tell us a little bit, like, how did you become interested in Tillinghast? It was a complete accident. Uh, uh, growing up on Long Island, I never... Uh, the closest I ever got to playing at a country club was driving by and waving. Uh, I'm 
learned to play at uh, this little, oh, it's nine-hole course, public course, Merrick Road Park Golf Course uh, in Merrick, and it was built on a landfill, and uh, so playing on a Sunday morning after a three-hour wait with uh, your parents and you're 12 years old was an absolute thrill, and just ignoring all the seagulls, eating all the garbage that was still shown through what grass there was, uh, to me, that, that was heaven, and from there, I got over to Eisenhower, and from then, Bethpage. And once I walked onto Bethpage the first time, that was it. I was doing everything I could to get over there, and I'm a real son of Beth. And so from there, uh, growing up, as life took me on little adventures here and there. Uh, down in uh, Atlanta, where I live now, outside of Atlanta, um, I had a my own... Uh, consulting company that uh, I had opened about a year and a half before when my oldest son was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Mm -hmm. uh, very severely uh, ill with it. A year after that, my younger son was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia, severe with that. And one of us had to stay home 24-7. Right. was an easy choice since my wife worked for a great insurance company and our benefits were so good that up until the son died, which was a couple of years ago, and my younger son, who is still with us at the age of 39, was still covered. So it was, I'd be home. And so in 1999, which is when this happened, I was driving myself a little nutty. I needed some stuff for me, and I just started writing. I always enjoyed writing. I wrote, uh, a lot of people would say my stuff right now is fiction, but I wrote a bunch of science fiction and fantasy, poetry. Oh, yeah, big sci-fi fantasy nut. Um, And uh, all that stuff seemed to get published, and then with the... 2002 open at Bethpage coming. I decided in July of uh, 2021 that someone should write a little bit of a history about it. I did. I I started on that and um, it came out first week of May 2022. The following 2002. uh, Yeah, Yeah. 2002. Pardon me. No worries. No worries. Yeah. the following week, this little unknown golf magazine, Golf Digest, came out and said, Tilly didn't design it. And my phone started ringing. Um, Reese Jones called me, who I had interviewed for the book. Uh, David Fay called me from the USGA. Uh, Dave Catalano from Beth Page, all wanting to know, is this true? And, of course, I said, no, it isn't. And... Uh, Ended up doing a quick little bit more research for them and uh, gave them a white paper that they used for it. Um, That in turn led them to giving me full media credentials for the U.S. Open. Something I never asked for. I was the only really non-media person to be given them. Um, That led to, um, before the, the Open, no... The book was Golf for the People, Beth Page in the Black. 
and little print-on-demand book. Nobody does reviews of print-on-demand books. Then, knowing that, but that was, I was interviewed everywhere, Miami, um, L.A. Times, um, Newsday had three pages of, on me uh, and the book leading up to the open. It, it was, in a lot of ways, I was on CNN. I was on um, uh, Golf Channel twice. Um, a lot of it, it, everybody wanted to know about Tilly and Beth Page. And overnight, I became the Tillinghast and Beth Page expert. And I decided, who am I to tell them I'm wrong? Uh, I'm not. So uh, that's that's how it all began. And, and do you think you would have taken that path had you not played Beth Page in your younger years? I mean, was it the fact that you'd played the people's course, if you will, that, you know, kind of pushed you to write that prior to the Open? I was passionate about Beth Page. If I'd never played Beth Page, none of that ever would have happened. Yeah. Um, I guess, let me ask you this then. When you were playing it back in the day, I mean, was Tillinghast on your mind or was it just you were exploring this amazing, you know, group of courses? Like, you know, was Tillinghast you know, on your mind during those early days? Or is that something you kind of uh, researched and kind of discovered later on? That was, I knew from the beginning that this guy Tillinghast designed it. It was just a name. It meant nothing to me until the late 90s when I decided to write about Beth Page and uh, look at that. Who's this guy Tillinghast? And then I did a little bit of research on him, but it was more that he owned it than who he was in the pantheon of, of, of architects. And that really only came about after the whole controversy began. I was stuck with what I learned. So from there, um, 2003, I got a phone call from one of the board members of the Tilling Association who said, Phil, uh, did you ever hear of us? I said, no. And he said, why don't you join? I said, okay. And a few months later, um, with uh, some things having come up with a couple of Tilly courses that people had asked me about, uh, I was asked to join the board. Then they asked, uh, they, they asked me, what title would I like? And so my inward sense to you said, I'd like to be the historian. They said, okay. And that's how I became the historian. How funny is that, right? And from there, I started answering questions that were emailed into the association. And all of a sudden, I'm being asked more in-depth questions, and I'm having to do more research. Now, again, being home with two mentally ill sons all this time, give me the opportunity to do something really no one else had to do full-time research on Tilly. I would spend late at night when I was up and it was quiet and downloading one newspaper article after another. My my computer database is now pushing 18,000 newspaper articles, individual ones about Tilly and, and, and his work alone. When people heard that I was writing about Tilly and, um, uh, the original uh, biography came out in 2004. Um, I would get emails sending me information, sending me newspaper articles they found. 
And so uh, all of a sudden things are building up on their own. And I just love to research. I enjoy sitting in front of a, uh, a, a computer and looking at one article after another. When I download articles from a newspaper, I also don't just clip and paste them. Uh, take that article out. I take the whole page because yes. I want to know the context of everything going on around it, too. So uh, something I've always enjoyed doing and I just started putting things into different files. Oh, that's about him at this course. Just shove it away there. And it just built up, built up, built up. And I've got more things out there in, in, in my filing cabinets in my garage now. And because uh, especially at even the till about 2015, most everything was was get, was printed out that I did. So bring and file away. It's I've got both types of databases. So from all this research, it, let's count, you know, I know you've written countless books on Tilly, uh, but you also have done club histories for country clubs and golf clubs. Do you, what's, what's the total count of books if you, if you add in those club histories that Tilly were, was a part of? Uh, 16. Wow. I didn't realize it was that big. <laughs> and I've, I've probably, what I always add to that. Uh, I've done about 22 or three or something like that course evolution histories for, for different clubs. The shortest one of those is 175 pages. The longest one is 660. Whoa. So, and that's not even a pure book, right? That's just that's a, that, Those are reports and binders, but I've had, I had to do them, print them out and give them copies and, uh, so that was just as much work as any any of the other books. And as you now already know, run-on sentences are something I love. Um, and so therefore, I have no problem writing more than less. So when I do reports like that, that's why they were so long. I was giving as much information as I could. I try to do that all the time because to me, the important thing is the information. So... Everything that, that, that I, I've, I've done with, with, with the research for the clubs just has brought about more requests and more uh, avenues of golf course architecture that I never expected. So I, I actually do some consulting. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you about, uh, you have a company, correct? Golden Age Research, is that correct? Golden Age Research. And tell us a little bit, if you can, before we jump into Tilly, about Golden Age Research. What do you do there? What I had been doing all along, research for golf clubs, for everything from the their club history through his, uh, the history of who designed their courses. So it wouldn't even have to be Tillinghast. This is a, a very yep. broad, correct? I've done, yeah, I've done a number of architects. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, it, it's uh, and that's that's a, a different sort of fun because then you, I get to walk on site at a club. They, uh, I have to be very careful with with this because it's like a doctor patient relationship. Nope. I, I I know exactly so, what you're talking about. Trust me. And, and so they trust me. It's their privacy. In fact, I, I've had the past where some guys really. Uh, 
gave me a little bit of grief over why I wouldn't give out very specific information that I learned through board minutes, et cetera. And I said, because it's not mine to give. And I told them I wouldn't, then too bad. And um, there is so much to be found. But the exciting thing for me is when I find things that they never expected to be to be found that are, are just amazing. So, for example, I went to one club. And when I do research at clubs, I they all know I am going to uh, uh, go through every nook, corner, file cabinet, building everything. And uh, that's it to find what they know don't or don't know, especially. So a good example, which I can do because these that I can give examples on the clubs know and have given me permission, Bloomfield Hills not a Tilly. Um, they had a rumor that Harry Colt had designed their course. And there was just nothing. Couldn't find anything. And, and they were trying to decide what they should do as far as renovating their course, reconstructing it, uh, or, or restoring what, what could be or couldn't be there. And I was recommended to them. And four hours after I had come through the front door, I had proven that he had. Now, but and, and it's an example of what almost every club I've ever been to, they don't know what they have. So they started off, they, they, the club manager gave me a tour of the club. And the first place he brought me to was the accountant's office. And in the accountant's office, they have this safe that looks like a, a, something that Jesse James would have blown apart. With <laughs> open up. It's been there it's forever. Old, oh, yeah, old and gorgeous. And there they showed me proudly on the top shelf the board minutes, starting with the oldest book of board minutes they had, 1940. And then the shelves that went down. And look at all this. So that's where I began when, when you know, after the tour. And I pulled out the first book, and I began to laugh because behind it was another. And I took the books on that top shelf, and the whole back shelf began 1911, uh, 1908 through... Uh, 1939. All those books they never knew they had were just behind. Because nobody even pulled them out to look. Because there was no reason to be pulling those out because now they're working on all the ones below. And it's things like that. And there in the 1913 Book of Board Minutes, it talks about uh, uh, Harry Colt arriving on site when he did the thing, his recommendation purchase 50 more acres, which they then did, that he uh, sent them plans and specifications from England. So there was no question that he had designed it. And what that enabled me to do is also show them that the design drawing they have on the wall of the second floor of the clubhouse is actually a, a, a surveyor's copy of what was on the ground in 1925. No changes had been made substantially to the course between 1913 and 1925. So I'm looking at a design drawing of Harry Colts. Wow. And they didn't even know. They had they it did. and didn't know. And Exactly. And even better, in their office were a set of original photographs taken back in the early. So they have actual photographs of the Harry Colts course. And that has happened so many places. It, 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 it stuns me 
and and yet shouldn't, but every single time it does. One other one, which I, I, I just really love this. I won't name this course. They, they, again, doing historical research for them. I go into their boardroom. I open up a closet, and there in the closet is bag of uh, bags of, of, of all of them see-through of old curtains. And I know everybody else would open it up, and it's just all tiled, piled on top of each other and left it there. So I just take them all out one at a time, and there on the bottom is a Notre Dame football helmet. And I'm looking at this. I said, that's really neat. But it's autographed. And it turns out autographed by a member of the club who back in the 1940s won the Heisman Trophy while playing at Notre Dame. And this was the Thursday night before that year's Heisman Trophy Award. And, and that was so cool. It had nothing to do with golf or the golf course. But just a, 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 an amazing piece of their history put aside, that happens all the time. Yeah. That's unbelievable. How cool, Phil. How cool indeed. It's always fun to get involved with uh, a club's history and dive in and, and discover things, isn't it? I mean, it's it's things that I think some of us take for granted and others just think it's a wonder. But it's just really about getting dirty and diving into the information. Yep. Let's dive into the hero of our story today. In many ways, Tillinghast was born at a perfect time in America. He was born before golf had really taken root in the States, and he was growing up when it started its rapid growth. How did Tilly find his way into golf? That was his dad. It's He, he and his dad decided to learn how to play golf together, probably at his father's urging. And uh, about 1892 probably occurred. Now, the reason for that is because there was an article in an early magazine about Tilly when he went over to uh, England with his father, and it stated how he was an accomplished player before he went to England and that he learned how to play much better by going and playing there and uh meeting the the, the the great players over there that he did and, and being helped with his game. So that that puts it much earlier than what we had all re- always thought or known. So they did this together. They uh, uh, In 1898, they were among the founders of the Belfield Country Club in Philadelphia. Um, Tilly was on their board. How old would he have been about that time? He was born in 1876, so he would have learned when he was about 18 and was about 21 when he went over in 1895 with his blushing bride, Lillian, um, and and his parents. So um, he was pretty young at that time. Yeah, to be on a board, I would think so. Well, and but back then it was different because they founded a club usually with the younger people, especially in the 1890s, because the older guys wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> that makes sense, right? Old, it does. Old, they were old and fat. Yeah. You know, in your book in the uh, Tillinghast Chronicles, Volume 1, you share a story of young Tillinghast just back from a trip to St. Andrews, and he's asked to visit Frankfurt, a uh, suburb in Philly. And you mentioned he 
did he get involved with the design there at that time? He did more than get involved with the design. What that was a rudimentary course. We don't even name your holes. Probably between three to five at the most. It was to where he could uh, teach the game to those in the public. But what's really interesting about that article where it's mentioned, it says he was invited to do that. Wow. And so the first question is who invited him? And it would have uh, been, and, and I feel bad, the name is is, is is just skipping out of my brain at the moment, but he was one of the founders of Belfield Country Club and also was a, a member of the Philadelphia Cricket Club, to which Tilly would be invited to become a member of by the turn of the century. Um, uh, so he was there. He was spent most of the summer teaching after getting back from, from the UK, teaching them how to play golf. And it was so rudimentary. The, the, he took uh, uh, used can, uh, tin cans that were storing peas to use as the cups. So he's, he's helping to redesign a, would you say just a, a more modern course a little bit? I mean, it clearly wasn't, you know, Beth Page Black, but he's just laying out the foundations of the game for this, the folks yeah, there. I just, and he was there every day to teach the, whoever he could say, Hey, come on, hit some golf balls. Let me show you how this play. And so these are short. It, yeah. It was uh, just a little something. Isn't that something? I mean, you know, here's this young guy, right. Um, just back obviously from Scotland and mm-hmm. he's taken upon himself to help, other people in the community learn the game and like laying out his, would we call that his first course? I, it's, it's it, and it's rudimentary. It's, it's next to nothing, but it's the first thing he ever did in golf course design and, and construction. And, and really the construction was nothing more than, okay, maybe cutting down a little bit of the grass here and yeah. a circle up there and sticking a, sticking a flag that, there. But what's really important about that is a lot of people have this mistaken idea that uh, old Tom Morris uh, mentored Tilly in right. golf course. I've heard that. That didn't happen. That's not why he was there. They became very good friends. They may have talked about architecture or not, but he was there p- almost primarily to play and get better. And so um, it, it's not as if they would go out and say, well, look at this and look at the shape of this, this book. Nothing, nothing at all like that. And Tilly from the very beginning was uh, very uh, opinionated about what he believed golf courses should be. And among them was that they should be something that teaches you to be better than what you were before you played it. So how, how did he get those relationships? Was his dad somewhat well-connected to, you know, have not just a brush with Tom Morris, but have conversations with him and some of the players of that era in Scotland? Um, it's hard to say exactly who knew and when they knew, but Tilly's personality was obviously a very strong one. So much of, of what was in my original Tilly Ann's biography back in 2004, there, there's, there's uh, about him as a person back then was based on what was by family members because at that time um, I didn't know as much now as I obviously do now um, and I didn't realize that the family were, were passing down misinformation 
So, for example, they they were all convinced that Tilly was terrible at business, lazy. And it turns out contemporary newspaper articles show it was exactly the opposite. He had actually been given business awards uh, for the work he was doing for his father's business before they even went for the first time to the UK in 1895. So he was very uh, good at his age in business. He was very driven to be good in everything that he could he could do. He shows all the signs of having been possibly uh, uh, high-functioning bipolar. It's, it's something I spoke about with uh, uh, his grandson, Dr. Philip Brown. Uh, first time I interviewed him way, way back when, and uh, he was asked me why I brought it up. I mentioned my son, and he said to me that, uh, and I said, because there's a lot of similarities from what I've been able to see, and, and he said that uh, he had always wondered if he might have been. Can you walk us through some of those similarities that, that align with bipolar? Sure. Tilly was interested in everything. Whatever he was doing, he was maximum concentrated on. Uh, so here you are, early 1890s. And what is Tilly doing? He's going to the Philadelphia Zoo to take photographs of animals, but not just taking photographs of animals. He wormed his way in through all the, all the people who worked there who would let him go behind the scenes to take photographs. And we know that because there are some very old magazines that actually have photographs of his animal photographs in them. Um, He's doing that while learning how to play golf, while uh, working uh, for his dad's business, while also going out on his own and doing some private consulting in the rubber uh, goods industry outside of that, that would also bring work back to his father's business. Um, dating, getting married, taking up a brand new game uh, and being absolutely passionate about it. He loved to read, absolutely loved to read and loved to write. He was writing back then. He loved to draw everywhere he went, even before uh, uh, he was doing this uh, in his work as an architect. He loved to draw. So he was doing all of these things. And and it, it just takes immense amounts of energy to do that. And it's that's what I saw with my son. And that's uh, uh, typical of, on, of those with that type of uh, bipolar disorder. You mentioned the rubber business. Walk people through what he did for work and what his father did. The Tillinghast's family itself, there's a lot of them who are into politics, who, uh, ministry, and especially uh, they were into uh, sailing and shipping. But a lot of them were also into rubber goods because others were into shipping and sailing, and, and that was a big thing to be imported in, into the uh, New England area. And so you'll find a lot of the Tillinghasts involved in, in the uh, rubber goods. And so they sold a lot of different that they could invent for themselves or create for themselves. They were, Tilly's father, BC, was so successful, he had at one time at least three, probably four different stores open, not just in Philly, but also Baltimore. So they were doing quite well at the time. Yes, they were. 
And so therefore, in fact, the Tillinghast Rubber Goods Company was closed in 1947, five years after Tilly died. That's it survived the Great Depression. So uh, there is. I mean, survived the Great War. I mean, you know, there were I know they they cut down on rubber goods. They must have been providing things for the war effort at the time. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, he he had a, a, a special uh, it was involved in uh, wheels for bicycles. And again, they're still doing wooden wheels in the late 1880s through early 1890s. And he saw the future and started uh, selling uh, rubber wheels. Brilliant. Well, the other thing you mentioned that, that really caught me, and it probably goes back to, you know, that curiosity of his and experimentation, right, is uh, the invention that he had around the game of golf that I read in your book. Because that one blew me away, which is rubber spikes, was it not? Yes, it was. He essentially invents them. Is that fair? Exactly. Something that everybody is using right now. Mm -hmm. Crazy. He was always ahead of so many others. He was the first uh, uh, person in the Philadelphia district, as they referred to uh, it back then, to use aluminum golf clubs back in after the turn of the century. He was he was known as a long hitter. He was a biggie. Um, he was wild, but he could hit it far. And anything he could find to help him hit it further, he was looking to experiment with. And uh, that's what happened with him and why he actually played one U.S. amateur with aluminum clubs. I didn't know that. So let's walk into Tilly as a golfer. I think some people might be surprised to know that he was a good player. How good of a stick was young Tilly? He was wild, but he was good because he got it up in the air. He got it out there. So like far and not so sure? Exactly. Absolutely. Um, And that's, again, back then, the game, nobody was really, when you grow up where golf is important from birth onward, you're going to turn out to be able to understand it and play it. That wasn't the United States back then. These are just guys who saw this and said, let me try that. And became addicted to it and just doing whatever they had to to get better. And um, that was Tilly. But he had the potential to be much better. And so slowly after his trip to K is when all of a sudden in, in 1900, uh, pardon me, 19, yeah, 1901, I guess it was, was his first U.S. amateur that he played in. Unbelievable. He was um, my favorite. He played in everyone through 1912. My, my favorite one of his was the one in, in uh, 1909, uh, it was. The reason for is he was in match play and w- was beaten by a gentleman whose father was uh, about to be uh, elected vice president of the United States to William, with William Howard Taft as president, Mr. Sheridan. And he beat Tilly in, in I think it was the quarterfinals, with his father and Taft following them. Yeah. And, and so even in his playing and, and the people he played with, he, he got very close to. 
He, he's uh, Roger Lapham, wonderful player, one of the uh, founders of Cypress Point, right? He was first president of, of uh, second president, but first president while the course was being built, but also the golf club. He is the one who got Tilly to out to the San Francisco Golf Club in 1919 and to uh, uh, design. Uh, I did not course. know that. Interesting. Yes. But he met Roger Lapham in 1902 because Lapham was living in New York and they were playing in a local tournament together and uh, Tilly beat him in a match. And yet they remained close friends throughout their whole lives. So that was it with the, the major players. They all knew Tilly. They either knew him from the UK or over here. Yeah. Let me ask you this then. So is it from his, his plain prowess that opens the door to designing golf courses? I mean, cause at this time, I don't know, like 99% of golf courses, maybe 95% of golf courses in the United States are designed by Scots, right? You've got like Bendelo and Finlay and you have Reed, you have Dunn. Uh, Ross is from Scotland. C.B. McDonald, he's from Canada, technically, if people didn't know that. And you have Walter Travis in Australia, but you don't have many Americas, uh, Americans. I can think of Devereaux Emmett, maybe I think was U.S. born, but there's just not a lot of U.S. golfers designing golf courses. So did it help that he was becoming an accomplished amateur? Did that have anything to do with it? That would, was more than help. That's what drove it. That. He could start writing about golf, which is what he did early on. He, and everything in his life then became golf, and his dad then helped sponsor him, as it were. Uh, yeah, it was that uh, his ability to play, wherever he went, they were talking about what should be done. There's new courses being built everywhere. And so overnight, what was a new course just three years before, so far behind the scenes, they have to change it. And so um, Tilly was already being asked by clubs to give advice on what they should do as to restructuring, reconstructing, redesigning, or building new courses back at the turn of the last century. Yeah. It, that what makes so much sense because you have the gutty going out of style, right? You have the Haskell ball coming in that's adding all the ridiculous length to the game. You know, I, I don't think people that people always equate that with the Pro V1, but the Haskell changed the game and it changed golf course design. So it makes sense. Like you'd go to a better player and say, how much more distance do we need? Where do we need to put these hazards? Right? Exactly. Exactly. And, Fascinating. and what, what's really neat with this too is that We've, there's been this mistaken belief many decades now that, that Shawnee was his first course because no one knew of anything before that. But the information has always been there. For example, uh, in 1932, Tilly did a newspaper interview in which he said that he had been advising clubs on their courses since the uh, for more than 30 years, which puts yeah. it to the beginning of the last century. In his 19, in 1942, January, he wrote a letter to Donald Ross about three and a half months before he would die. And in it, he stated that he had already been busy designing and building courses since 1905, 
Now, he had been to Shawnee for another three years. Uh, he had been to Shawnee. Let me ch change that. He and his wife had a summer home in Shawnee from 1900 onwards. That's how he ended up uh, becoming close friends with the Worthingtons and being asked to design the course at, at Shawnee. But that didn't start until 1909. So here's definitive proof in his own handwriting and own words in, in, in um, uh, interviews that he had been working on course design and redesign and advising clubs for at least a decade before Shawnee. Wow. Do we have any record of what courses? I mean, has, has that been lost to history or do we, do we have any names? Most of them have been lost to history. I can give two definitive ones. Uh, there is some controversy with the first one simply because I think it's that it's hard for anyone to accept that Tilly did anything before Shawnee. But in his 1926 advertising brochure, he stated that he had designed not a nine-hole course, Kingston Golf Club. The, the question had always been, when did that happen? And uh, one gentleman up there had always thought it was in 1902. And he had actually emailed me a question about this, gave me a specific date. And I did quick research and was able to prove to him that Tilly couldn't have been there on that day. He was in Philadelphia in a match um, uh, at his shooting gallery because Tilly loved to shoot as well. So he was on a team for his shooting club that that day and there's no way back then you could get back and forth there so that happened but then um when i was doing the work on the tillinghast course book that i did for tillinghast chronicles the the uh going through everything i had brought me back back the 1902 board minutes which i had copies of and even though it doesn't mention him it mentions two things one, that they had hired a New York architect, is the way they put it uh, uh, back then, uh, to do the uh, uh, new course. And that they also said an, an expert golfer to do the course. And that a month and a half later, after as work was beginning on the course, they closed they went out of business. They said, we're no longer going to be a club. We're going to merge and become the Twaffle Skill Club. And so from then on, the Twaffle Skill, which was all already in existence, took over the property where they were building the course and went on. So if Tilly had designed the course for Kingston, it had to be prior to them going out. It had to be. There is no other explanation for that. So, and now knowing that he had been designing courses back that early, it makes sense that that's what he did because he's not overseeing construction. He's not there at a daily basis. He went up there one day. He said, oh, this is your land. Fine. This is how it will be. Put stakes in the ground and left them to build what they were going to build. Said, okay, do this here, that there. There you go. And they built a simple course. So that's one of them. Another one is his own club, the Belfield Country Club. In uh, 1904, the board voted to design, uh, to, to uh, 
build nine additional holes, nine brand new holes to add to their existing nine, which then would be redesigned. Now on the board was Tilly. Who else would do it? Yeah, nobody, right? I mean, that, that makes all the sense in the world. And yet again, that's listed in his 1926 advertising brochure. In 1916, the Belfield Golf Club, because so many members had decided they wanted to go to other clubs where they had much better golf courses, they closed up the golf course and just stayed open as a club. There was no more golf there. So again, it had to be before 1916, and there's nothing that shows him doing it during the, the teens. So that would have had to be it in, in, in uh, 1905. And so there must have been others because of what he had said, what he had written. We just don't know them. Probably most of them are no longer in existence. Others may have just lost their information. Or there's just, a, maybe there's moments where he shows up on site like, Bendelow might have and just said, I'd put the, you know, tee box here and I'd put this here. And there's really no minutes for those early clubs, right? Because they were, you know, these could have been clubs that were just kind of brand new and there wasn't a formal organization. It was like, we just want a golf course. Well, yeah, that's true. But most of them, because they incorporated, did still had minutes. Uh, sure. Let me give you, give you an example. Uh, Philadelphia Cricket Club. They've been in existence since the 1850s. A golf club, uh, I think it was. 95 they they or 97 that they uh, started golf but a number of years ago i did a course evolution history for them and i was stunned that with their love of history there were almost no books of board minutes they just didn't have them like they uh, were lost or obviously they were kept at some point well they were kept they just didn't know where they were hmm. and and so um snooping around i actually visited a local historical society and turns out one of their past presidents had decided they needed space and donated all of them to the historical society with no records of them going there exactly and and so there was a lot of old information there i found a cop uh, a a working copy, let me put it that way, of their original um, uh, course, the St. Martin's course, uh, from the uh, about 1900. And on it in pencil, in colored pencils, uh, were changes to the uh, uh, golf course and the additional new holes, which they were then considering doing so that they could get the U.S. Open, which they would get later on. Now, this was in three pieces in the bottom of, of a box where other old uh, drawings were. So a lot of the information from back then is just simply lost to time or in places that they haven't found yet. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned Shawnee on the Delaware. Is, was that the turning point in his golf design career? Was that the you know, the part that basically shot puts him into the national in Nash international recognition. And if so, why? Um, yes, it was. And the reason it was is because the Worthingtons were passionate about golf. Uh, CC Worthington was fabulously wealthy. Um, 
he spoiled his sons who uh, were passionate about golf. And he himself uh, had, had a, another small course in, in the Shawnee area uh, back in the late 1890s, which uh, for the family, they had a little few holes on, on their own estate as well. So when they decided to open up um, uh, this this resort, he wanted to have a golf course and his good friend and neighbor, uh, Tilly, uh, I talk golf all the time. Of course, he'll have them do that. But That's he wanted funny. more than a golf course, what we would really call today a championship course. That's what the Worthingtons want, wanted, correct? Yes. And Tilly would obviously loved the idea and so decided to put everything he knew into this course and it, it, it's as far as we know his earliest true championship course and in order to then make it worthwhile they decided we should have a championship so one year after it opened they held the first shawnee open and now pros from everywhere were coming because they're getting a free time there at this hotel in the, in, 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 in the uh, Pennsylvania mountains and playing a, a tournament. And uh, it was great. And they were, wow, look at this course. And they brought that knowledge back everywhere. And they were talking to people about, yeah, this course is designed by uh, our friend Tillinghast over there. And that led to him getting a lot more work. It led him to uh, getting other work in the golf business that few people know about. He was hired by Carter's Seeds to sell seeds. Big move there. I mean, they were a massive name in the seed business in the early part of the century. Yes. He he wrote in in the the Golf Journal uh, uh, that they sponsored uh, every month for a couple of years. This tournament really became major. In 1913, when the triumvirate came over from the UK, and everybody thinks of the U.S. Open, where they were defeated. But forget that that's what happened at Shawnee. Yeah, it was a whooping, right? Johnny McDermott. That's right. Didn't he win by like eight strokes or something crazy like that? But it was at... After that, because he was bragging on them and he was giving huge <laughs> grief, yeah, that that led to his mental break. Yeah, no, he put, I, I mean, it added a lot of pressure on him, and he kind of cracked at the 1913 U.S. Open. He would have been, he would have scored what for his third U.S. Open? Was that third in a row? I think it was his third in a row. Could have been, yeah, and, and, and crazy. It, but again, that's in just two years' time. That's the level that he had brought that tournament to, Tilly, by his contacts. And it just, 1919 was supposed to be its first major with the with the women's U.S. US amateur, but it was canceled, uh, uh, 1918, pardon me, because of the uh, a war in 1919 yeah. would be held. And so he's then already had on that course his first championship. So you really think so? You think the 1913 invasion of and the and the Shawnee Open really was the the key to shining a light on that great design as a championship course that really led to, you know, call it national recognition for Tillinghast as a great golf course designer. Is that fair? Absolutely, because at that time, 
everybody knew the greatest players in the world were in the UK. Why would they bother? Hey, look at that. They're coming over here. And where's the first place they went was Shawnee. Then they had this big thing. Everybody covered them in the U.S. Open. And so many articles mentioned, yeah, they were at Shawnee. And so it just all fell together for Tilly that way as far as marketing. That's amazing. I, 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 before we move off of Shawnee, I, I'm going to share one of my favorite stories of Shawnee. And it's, it's years later, almost 10 uh, or over 10, I should say, is uh, Tommy Armour once took a 23 on a hole at the Shawnee uh, Open. And it's one of my favorite golf history stories because he was so stubborn about it. His caddy, when he got up to the tee box, I, I forget which one it was because I'm going off the top of my head here, but uh, his caddy told him that the, the hole called for a fade. This is Tommy Armour right after winning the U.S. Open at Oakmont. So I think he was a little disturbed that his caddy would try to tell him how to play a shot. So he's like, no, 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 it's a draw. So Armour hits one out on the right, and it doesn't draw, and it goes out of bounds. And, you know, the caddy's like, I think it's a fade. And he's like, no, it's a draw. And he hits another one out of bounds, and another one, 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 and another one. And finally hits it in the middle of fairway. And he said, I told you that's how you play the hole. And he took a 23. <laughs> he got tillied, right? He got tillied. I love that. I sincerely hope you enjoyed part one of the history of A.W. Tillinghast. We ended at perhaps the most pivotal point in Tilly's career, the point where he is about to break through and become one of the greatest golf course architects that ever lived. I promise you, you will not want to miss our next installment, where we dive into courses like Wingfoot, Baltusrol, and the San Francisco Golf Club. What made Tilly great? And what was Tilly's design style? I'm afraid you're just going to have to wait. Until next time. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>